0: Hi. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we look to his word. Uh, Father and our God, you are good to us. Uh, um, God, what are chariots and horses that we should trust in them. And we have the living God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, Uh, the one who made us, the one who has redeemed us, the one who would make us new, and the one who is our father, and we can trust in you. And God, you take care of us, as even the Apostle Paul said, either in life or in death, Uh, God, uh, you are our savior. Thank you. we thank you for this morning that we can gather as your people, as your children, as your servants uh, to come together and hear what you have to say from your word through your spirit. Instruct us and so that uh, we may be formed in Christ to be faithful witness to, witnesses to him for your glory in the power of the spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are uh, in the second of our short series of uh, uh, sermons from the the book of the Psalms. We are calling, it, calling them a uh, few of our favorites. Uh, our because Pastor Jim and Pastor Tim will also uh, join me in this series. We saw S- Psalm 16 last week. Psalm 20 today. And then uh, 23, 11, 96, 1 and probably 67. So uh, uh, there are 150 of them to pick. So we pick some of our favorites. Uh, this one is my favorite. Today we are in Psalm 20. It's my favorite because it's my, it was my father's favorite. Uh, my father spent over an hour every day uh, reading God's word and praying uh, and this is a psalm he read every day so uh, uh, I was intrigued and it became one of my favorites as well but uh, the more I read it the more I studied it the more I like it because it's, uh, as it's true of God's word the more you uh, study the, the, the depth of it you you can plumb uh, so uh, Psalm 20 is a, it's a royal psalm it's a psalm for the king Or of the king. It's a prayer uh, on the day of trouble. It's a prayer for the needs of the king. But it is more than just presenting uh, needs before God. It's a confession, first of all, of a trust in God. The God who saves. So the psalm has much to teach us, not only about how we ought to pray, but more, more than that, about the one to whom we pray. We are not new to prayer. Calvary is a praying church. Last week I was speaking to Mac Peer, I think his name. Uh, He is one of the founders of the the uh, movement.org and also Concerts of Prayer. And and he was telling me about story after story of how things got started in Calvary, prayer movements. So uh, is there anything we could learn from prayer, uh, from uh, from the psalm about prayer? I'm assuming that uh, you're all people who pray. So... uh, and that you prayed this morning, so what did you ask in the name of Jesus in your prayers today? Parking Park space. Uh, <laughs> did you get one? one? Amen. Yes. Yeah. Orville. Orville was telling me this morning that there were plentiful spots this morning. Uh, all the New Yorkers must have left town for the hot weather. <laughs> what else did you pray for? Peace. Peace for yeah. For. For the world, for our yeah, that's what all the beauty contestants pay for, right? Peace. Um, for God to move in the lives of various family members. For God to move in the lives of various family members. For Pam's mother. For more patience. his lesson for the kids uh, uh. so there's much that we can ask for in the name of Jesus in our prayers but here's a question that may seem odd to you have you ever prayed for Jesus we pray in the name of Jesus but have you ever prayed for Jesus I see Audrey's looking at me like what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> is is yeah <laughs> I'm serious uh is Jesus alive yes. uh, does Jesus have plans yes. plans that are yet to come to fruition yes. Yes. yeah so should we pray for him yes. yeah <laughs> so the question is not if we should if we should pray but uh how we should pray as we will see in uh, psalm twenty uh, psalm twenty uh the theme of the psalm is Hope in the Lord and, and not in the tools of war. Uh, this is more than just a psalm or a song. It, it appears to be a whole liturgy, a service in preparation for war. Salvation belongs to the Lord is the basic theology of all the psalms. And every line of this psalm echoes that belief. Uh, it's divided into four parts. The first five lines are a prayer of the people for their king who is facing a distressing situation. Uh, that And the context tells us in verses 7 through 8 and Uh, Verse five two that he he faces war. Verse six is a is a is a prophetic or a priestly voice that assures the king's victory as an answer from the Lord. Then the whole uh, congregation joins this voice in verses seven and eight, uh, confessing trust in the Lord. And the psalm concludes with a final line of petition for the king, but this time addressed to the Lord directly. Uh, there are several shifts in this psalm. There's a movement. That it begins with the third person singular, and then shifts to first person plural, and then to first person singular, and then back to first person plural. And you're like, who's praying? What is he, <laughs> who's being prayed for? Uh, it may seem confusing, but uh, stay with me. Uh, it will all make sense, hopefully. We read in the first five verses to the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire. And fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. To the choir master, a psalm of David. We we said last week that the superscription is part of Scripture. It's not an addition by the translators or editors. Uh, here the Psalm is described as a Psalm of David. Uh, usually that means a, a prayer or a psalm uh, authored by David, as is true of many psalms. But the Hebrew preposition that is uh, translated as of can also be translated as, uh, as by or for or to. So it's the context that determines this usage. And here, that the, the context makes it clear, this is a st- psalm for David. It's not David who's praying, but the people who are praying for him as, the, as their king. It could very well be a psalm written by David to instruct the people on how they should pray for the king. But here it is the people that pray to the Lord, and that the Lord would answer the prayers of the king, King David. It's a, it's a prayer uh, for the king's prayers to be answered. It's a prayer for prayers to be answered. Uh, only when the king is such a man, whose prayers will be answered... Can the people hope that their prayers will be answered for the king's prayers to be answered? Where can we find such a king whose prayers will be answered by God? Prayer begins with, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Uh, It begins with a need. The king is in imminent trouble. Uh, He needs, as we see in, in these verses, he needs protection, he needs help, he needs support. He needs divine answers and intervention and ultimately victory in his battle. Uh, that's the trouble that he's facing. He's headed to battle. And this psalm was perhaps the liturgy for a pre-war service at the temple when the people joined the king before God as he goes into battle representing them, the nation. Uh, The voice that we hear is the voice of the, the congregation. But notice, while their prayer is to God, it is not addressed to God but to the king. God is addressed indirectly, even though He's the subject of all the petitions. He's the one who is called upon to answer the uh, on, answer prayer, but the words are directed toward the king. This is like something we say when, to, when we say to someone, "God bless you." Uh, we are speaking to the person, but we are praying for the person. We are asking God to bless him, but we are speaking to the person that God would indeed answer our prayer to bless him. So it's a prayer to God, but it's addressed. To the person on behalf of whom we ask God. God is the savior. And the king is the one who needs to be saved. Uh, the people pray for the king. Because their destiny is intertwined with his. His day of trouble is their day of trouble. Uh, they will rise or fall with him. Uh, they they intercede for their king who is gearing up for war. Uh, but this is also a word of encouragement to, king, to the king. To anticipate a positive response from God. In answer to their prayer. Notice the prayer is addressed. To the Lord. Whenever we see in English. Uh, the L-O-R-D. In, in all capital letters. Uh, it, it's the translation of the word Yahweh. Uh, the covenantal uh, name of God. Uh, they're not praying to some generic God. They're praying to the God. Who has entered into covenant relationship with them. Uh, and, and three times this, this psalm would invoke the name of God. As we see in the first verse. So that their king uh, is not the primary actor in this psalm. God is the one who has to act. The king is the one who is acted upon. It is God who brings victory, not the king. And the victory that the king will anticipate and, will, come, uh, and will, will enjoy will come as a work of God, not his work. The people cry out to God who alone can bring resolution to the crisis at hand. We've already seen that this psalm is an expression of trust. That's what it means to pray. See, prayer is an act of faith. In the one to whom we pray. See God has said that he would rescue those who take refuge in him. In Psalm 91 verses 15 to 16, when uh, we hear the words of God, when He, that is the person who has taken refuge in Him, when He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. This prayer is a response of trust in God who has promised that to those who take refuge in Him. Those who come to God in prayer must trust Him. The writer to the Hebrews agrees, whoever will draw near to God must believe that He exists. And that He rewards those who seek Him. May the Lord answer you. That's how the Psalm opens, and that's the same petition with which the Psalm ends. May He answer us. Uh, the, so the Psalm is bookended with uh, with petitions that God must answer, because unless He answers, their help will not come. And may the God, with the name of the God of Jacob, protect you. Uh, this is the first of the three occurrences of the phrase "the name of God" uh, when when. Uh, and in every in every of one of its occurrences, there's a heightening of the relational nature of the name of God. When we speak of the name of God, we speak of the presence of God. We speak of the power of God. We speak of the character of God. So when, when they pray in the name of God, they are praying to a God who is present, a God who is powerful, a God who is active in their midst. And notice, the first time they mention the name of God, He is named as the name of the God of Jacob. The God of Israel is the God who had covenanted with their patriarchs. He's the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. Last Sunday when we baptized uh, uh, six of our people, they were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and and the Holy Spirit. That means the triune God had put His name upon them. As much as He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He's the God of Amy and, and the God of Madison and Caroline and Madeline. So that's what it means, that He's the God of Jacob And he's the God of, and the name of God of Jacob is invoked here because he's the God who delivered Jacob in the day of trouble, and Jacob had many days of trouble. (laughs) We see that in Genesis 32, Genesis 35. In Genesis 35, verse 3, Jacob declares, uh, testifies, then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. That's Jacob's name for God the God who answers me in the day of my distress and Jacob says and has been with me wherever I have gone the petition here is to the same God who delivered Jacob on his day of distress and that that same God would deliver the king from his distress it is please please do for this king what you did for Jacob because you are the same God may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion the temple like the tabernacle before was the place where God dwelt. God dwells in the heavens, but He has condescended to be present with His people on earth. He was present with Adam and Eve in the garden, but after uh, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, the next time God's presence is with His people, is only at the tabernacle and the temple. But neither heaven nor earth can contain our omnipresent God. Uh, Solomon at the dedication of the temple had included a petition that God would answer His people when they direct His prayers toward the temple at the time of war. We read in 1 Kings 8, and 45, If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. The petition here in the psalm where the temple is probably the setting for their worship was that the God who was present in that temple would help and deliver his, their king. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. The king has offered the necessary sacrifices both for him and on behalf of his people. And The prayer is that God would find those offerings acceptable. Otherwise, those offerings are in vain. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. You see, prayer is the overflow of the desires of our hearts and the plans of the heart. Uh, The king's desires and plans ought to be those that would find acceptance with the Lord. Only when they are aligned with God's will and God's purposes will they be granted. This is no blank check to the king. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. Banners indicate again the context of war, uh, much like our star-spangled banner. The whole congregation stands with the king in prayer. The king is not alone. His people are rooting for him. They will rejoice and celebrate with him when he emerges victorious from his distress. The people of God stand in solidarity with one another and with their king. All are affected by the king's distress and they will all experience and celebrate God's deliverance together. No one is to be alone in their troubles, in their distress. That's why God has established us and placed us in communities. These people are together before God. Every person that uh, belongs to God is embedded into a community that stands with each other and together before God. We are not supposed to fight our battles by ourselves. Calvin writes and of uh, salvation we shall we shall then only become partakers when being all gathered together in one body under the same head we shall have mutual care one of another and when none of us will have his attention so engrossed with his own advantage and individual interests as to be indifferent to the welfare and happiness of others together we cry out to the one who saves. The psalm just moves in verse 6 to another voice. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. See that I I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Uh, The voice shifts to the first person singular. Now I know. Uh, It's an individual, the narrator, who speaks in verse 6. It could be a prophet, a priest, or a Levite at the temple. Uh, and the tone changes as well. first five verses were petitions, but now uh, this is a word of assurance, uh, an assurance that the, the, that which they have petitioned the Lord for is already granted. Uh, perhaps that the, the person speaking has had a, heard an oracle from God, or perhaps, as we ha- heard in the song it 's an assurance based on the reputation and history of God with his people, as the one who has always delivered them in their times of trouble in the times of distress. So whatever the source of assurance, the speaker urges the gathered worshipers to be confident in the Lord's answer on their behalf uh, for the anointed. Now I know. Uh, This is a phrase that frequently occurs in the Old Testament to indicate sure, certain knowledge. For example, uh, when Abraham does not hesitate to offer up Isaac, God says, now I know you fear God. The speaker here is certain of the Lord's salvation of the anointed. The anointed again its a reference to the king. Kings, priests and prophets were anointed because they represented God to his people and, and God's people to God. The people are assured that their prayers, the petitions that they had placed in verses 1 through 5 have been heard and will be answered. The, speakers, the speaker assures them that their king will be delivered because God will act in his power. That's what the right hand of God represents a a metaphorical way of speaking of God's power and God's authority over all creation. And we are told in the New Testament that's where Jesus is seated as the one who is vested with the very power and with the very authority of God as Peter proclaims on the day of Pentecost. Uh, This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised and exalted to his right hand. Now the congregation joins this soul uh, voice in expressing trust In God, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The most well-known words of this psalm that we just sang. Uh, The affirmation of the king's victory uh, is a result of God's answer and God's intervention, and that leads to a confession of trust in their God. The whole community, the we, confesses their trust in the name of Yahweh, their God, and and not in military might for their deliverance. See, in the ancient world, before the invention of uh, gunpowder, horses and chariots were equivalent to uh, the nuclear arsenals of today. Uh, They were mighty weapons, and they drew the fear of enemies and and decimated enemy armies. Uh, Those of you who have seen uh, Lord of the Rings movies, you know what happens to the orcs when the riders of Rohan show up. And they had only horses. They didn't even have chariots. See, the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians, they liked to take selfies with their horses and chariots to glorify themselves. Well, you know, portraits. See, the temptation was indeed great to put their hope in their advanced weaponry, but not for Israel. See, Israel trusted, is called to trust in their Lord, not in chariots or horses. Why? Israel had taken possession of the promised land without horses or chariots. Why? Because the Lord fought for them. Jericho fell, not because they had horses and chariots, but because they marched around the wall seven times and shouted. Gideon's little army triumphed not with horses and chariots, but with pots and torches. At the time of Hezekiah, the account that Ryan read, getting all the hard names Right? Yes. When Sennacherib and the Assyrians threatened him and Judah, uh, Hezekiah is in distress, he is in trouble. But he doesn't capitulate to the demands of the Assyrian king. Uh, nor does he take on weapons, but he cries out to God, and God fought for them. We, read, we heard read that the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 of them overnight. And Sennacherib himself was... Killed by his own sons after he departed and went back to Nineveh. But right in the middle of the account, the section we, we, uh, we skipped this morning, uh, we, we have uh, an echo of this psalm in the voice of the Lord against the, the, the king of Assyria. We read in Second Kings 19 verses 22 to 28. I'll just read parts. In verse 22, God speaking, Whom have you mocked? We heard the mocking earlier. Uh, Whom have you mocked and revolved? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountain. God continues in verse 25, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while the inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. Sennacherib's victory was not because of his horses and his chariots, but because God had allowed him those victories. But now God says, but I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in, my, in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. That's what happens to people who put their trust in horses and chariots. God had prohibited Israel from the very beginning in Deuteronomy from accumulating weapons and horses and chariots because they could easily become, become a snare, a temptation to trust in them instead of their God. Again, Calvin on this verse, he concludes, there is, a, there is here a comparison between the people of God and all the rest of the world. We see how natural it is almost uh, to almost all men to be the more courageous and confident the more they possess of riches, power, and military forces. The people of God, therefore, here protest that they do not place their hope as is the usual way with men in their military forces and warlike apparatus, but only in the aid of God. Those who trust in the armaments will collapse, but those who trust in the Lord will stand. See, Israel's pride, Israel's boasting was in the name of the Lord their God, not in chariots or in horses. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord is, uh, is the affirmation from both Jeremiah the prophet and Paul the apostle. To trust in weapons would be a contradiction to their faith in the Lord. Yes, they could use weapons that God provides, but their trust is not in those weapons but in the Lord who grants victory. Human resources, power and prestige cannot save. God alone saves. They will trust in the God who saves and not in the weapons that could fail. They will rely on the God, on God alone for their deliverance. We read in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 to 25, uh, Turn to me, this is God speaking again, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, sworn. by my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all of the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Trust in the Lord who saves. No wonder the psalm is closest with the words, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Uh, it's a nice book ending with his opening words. was, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Here may he answer us. Uh, but here it's a direct petition to, to God from the congregation. Uh, the Hebrew could actually be read, Give victory, O Lord. Let the king answer us when, he call, when we call. Or, O Lord, grant victory. May the king answer us when we call. Which king are they seeking answers from? Not the earthly king for whom they are praying. Here is an acknowledgement that the real king of Israel is Yahweh, uh, and not his earthly representative, the, the, the king, even if it was David. See, the ruling power of God and not of the earthly king is the basis for their trust in the victory that would be theirs. The Lord is king. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to those who call upon the name of the Lord. It is those who call upon the name of the Lord who will be saved. So trust in the Lord who saves. This is the overarching theology of uh, of the Psalms of all scripture. The New Testament's equivalent of the claim the Lord reigns is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus reigns is evident in the growth of the gospel from its obscure beginnings to a worldwide uh, faith today. This is the Lord's doing, not that of human power or cleverness. Paul declares the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe in the, that Jesus Christ is Lord. All who care, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. This is timeless truth and therefore it's true for us. The Lord reigns. Like the people in Psalm 20, if we cry out to Him, Uh, not only in distress but in all times he hears and answers us so what can we learn from Psalm 20 about prayer first uh, how it it ought not to be misused see this Psalm has these wonderful lines as we see in the petitions in verses 4 and 5 may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans may the Lord fulfill all your petitions Uh, this is ripe for picking for these these, uh, prosperity preachers to exploit. Name it and claim it. That's that's not what this Psalm teaches. These promises are not a blank check offered to anyone, let alone the king. See, remember Satan's temptation of the Lord? It was a misuse of scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, verses eleven and twelve, to tempt our Lord to test God. We read in Matthew 4, 5 to 7, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle to the temple and said, To him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, here's the psalm, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's not a blank check. Those promises are for those who have taken refuge in the Lord, not for those who test him. That's why Jesus said to him, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knows that those wonderful promises of God are not for those who test Him, but for, as the verses precede, those promises indicate for those who have taken refuge in Him. So also these words in Psalm 20 are for those who have taken refuge in the Lord, those whose hearts and petitions are aligned with God's desires, God's plans, God's purposes. Notice what precedes uh, and follows these king's desires and plans and petitions before that we see that this king is the one who faithfully keeps the covenantal obligations of offering worship and prayers and sacrifice the verses that follow tell us this king is one who puts his trust in Yahweh and not in horses or chariots he is one who is aligned with the will of God and therefore the prayer for his God aligned desires and God aligned plans and petitions will be granted and so also for us See, it's only when we ask according to God's will, we are granted our requests. Uh, we'll see this positively in just a minute. Uh, but there's another way in which this psalm can be misused, that is to apply the words of this psalm to some ruler or some nation today. Notice this psalm is a prayer for a ruler, prayer for a nation. Uh, uh, the scripture calls us to pray for kings and for all those who are in authority, uh, those who hold office, uh, that we may lead a quiet life. But what the scriptures don't tell us is that we have nations today that are God's. Nations we don 't have kings today who are anointed like the, the the kings of Israel. God warns against fascination with the military might of our nations and our rulers. Uh, scripture warns us against dependence on the rule of earthly kings that we give them the trust that we owe to God alone yet sadly that 's precisely what Christians have done, both in the distant and recent past, and, and continue to do so. We easily identify earthly rulers with god 's anointed. We assume that if so and so is elected as president or if such and such person is appointed to the court or if such and such party is elected to power, righteousness will prevail in the nation. It hasn't happened. See, there's nothing wrong with wanting good governance. In a democracy, we're obligated to seek such rule. But to trust them instead of the God who raises up and brings down rulers for accomplishing His purposes is improper and could be even blasphemous. It would be exactly the opposite of what this psalm teaches to put our trust in earthly rulers, to trust in those we deem to be the right president or the right party, or to trust in horses and chariots and not in the name of the Lord. There's no nation today that can claim to be the people of God like ancient Israel. See, today the people of God, the church, spans across national boundaries. And to identify... the leader of any nation as God's anointed is a terrible and dangerous distortion of God's word. See, the primary purpose of God's anointed, the kings of Israel, was to lead God's people in the way of Yahweh. What national leader does that today? Even the kings of Israel, David included, failed in that calling. See, imagine God's people praying for the desires of David's heart to be granted after he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. Can you imagine the danger of uncritically applying words such as, May God give you the desires of your heart, and may all your plans succeed to any politician today? So how then should we apply this psalm to our lives? First we pray in the name of Jesus. So we pray this psalm's not just for kings in distress, but for the community of God's people who are in distress. If the king responded in his distress by crying out to God, how much more all of God's people should do the same. This psalm uh, may very well have been instructed, uh, written to instruct God's people on how they should pray in the times of their own distress. This, the, this psalm teaches us not only how to pray we, when we are in distress, but as this whole psalm is an intercession for the king, it also teaches us how to intercede for others who are in distress. Uh, the most significant feature of this psalm, as we saw in the thrice-repeated phrase, that this psalm is based on the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord who had entered into covenantal relationship with His people. Uh, that's the most transferable concept of the psalm from then to now. Uh, Jesus, in words that seem to echo the psalm, has made provision for us to pray in His name. We read in John 14, verses 13 and 14, Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Praying in the name of Jesus, like praying in the name of the God of Jacob, is a call to pray for the cause of Jesus. Notice the condition. Whatever we ask, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It is those prayers that are assured and answered. So how, how are our prayers aligned with the cause of Jesus. Uh, How is His name at stake in our petitions? Uh, What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus and for the victory of King Jesus? See, our prayers along with our whole being are to be oriented toward Jesus and what He is doing in the world. Asking whatever in Jesus' name does not mean giving us what we desire apart from God's will and purpose. The promise is a call to bring our hearts in alignment to God's purposes, God's will, God's desires. Uh, it's for those who trust in God alone. It's this psalm, uh, this promises seek to reshape our heart's desire so that we care about and pray for the purposes and plans of King Jesus to be fulfilled even more than our needs or successes or our comfort and our well-being. So when our desires are so transformed we find that our true longings our true desires are fulfilled only in the victories of King Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus in celebrating his victories, his accomplishments. We give thanks to God for Jesus because unlike the king's sacrifice, his offering for us, for our sake has been accepted by God. We are to present petitions and supplications that would express his victory. We rejoice with the angels and praise Jesus with them when a sinner is saved through faith in Jesus Christ. When we share the gospel, we pray in the name of Jesus for his rule to be established in the hearts of those to whom we speak. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. We understand praying in the name of Jesus. What about praying for Jesus? I got to answer Audrey's look over there. (laughs) Uh, See, Psalm 20 is a prayer for the king. Jesus is our king. But does he need our prayers, like this earthly king that uh, was prayed for in Psalm 20? We ought to be very careful when we speak of need, when we are speaking of God. God is the only one who has no need outside of himself. But prayer is more than expressing needs before God. Prayer is agreeing with God's plans and purposes. So in that sense, yes, we ought to pray for Jesus. Jesus our Lord has been raised he has defeated the devil, death and the powers. God has granted his victory to his son, our king. Salvation belongs to the Lord Jesus. But while the victory is already won, it is not yet consummated. And it will happen when he returns and makes all things new. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-25, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The end has not yet come. So we pray. We pray for King Jesus even as God's people prayed for their earthly king in Psalm 20. We pray for his final victory that God will surely bring about. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we root for our desires and the victory of King Jesus, we will celebrate with joy when He wins. The book of Revelation is full of songs about the victories of God and His King and His Son by all of God's creatures. Uh, the the, The people in Psalm 20 prayed for their King's prayers to be answered. Does Jesus pray? Yeah. He's the only King whose prayers are always answered and who does He pray for? Yes. yeah. John 11, Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus uh, and uh, he declares to the crowd there, uh, to his father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. And his prayer was heard and death gave up its hold on Lazarus. See, Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of the father. His prayers for us will be answered for he is always asking for us according to his father's will. We pray for Jesus that God would answer Jesus's prayers for us we do well for ourselves in praying for Jesus's prayers for us to be answered are our prayers greater than Jesus's prayers for us so we can rest that when we ask God to answer Jesus's prayers for us our prayers that we ought to pray for ourselves is answered or answered but what about our needs can we can we pray for them Are they lost in the alignment of our desires and plans with the will and purposes of God and Christ? Not at all. We naturally long for our success, our joy, our comfort, for things to go well for us and our children. But we can bring these before God, trusting God to answer them in such a way that Jesus is honored and glorified in His answers to our petitions. I love how one writer puts it, When when going to a job interview, I am to pray, Father, give Jesus what He wants today. When taking an exam, I should ask, Father, give Jesus the result He wants for me today. When belonging to a local church, I ought to pray, Father, may the yearnings of uh, uh, King Jesus' heart be fulfilled in what happens in this church, even if it includes being humbled and having a tough time. That's what it means to pray for Jesus. Everything we pray, we pray for the sake of Jesus. And His victory. He is our righteous King. When we pray in His name according to His will and His purposes and His plans, for His victory, our prayers are answered. In His victory is the fullness of our joy. God, grant victory to our King Jesus. Trust in the God who saves for Jesus' sake. Last Sunday, I closed the sermon with a hymn uh, as prayer. This Sunday, we'll we'll close with the words of Psalm 115 as our prayer slightly modified for us and select verses. But read Psalm 115. Um, The Latin version of the song is uh, sung in the movie, uh, Henry V, after the end of a devastating war. uh, That it is God who establishes His kings and accomplishes His victory. So join with me as I read this as a prayer. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say? Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does what He pleases. O church, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. O body of Christ, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the church. He will bless the body of Christ. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great and small. For we pray in the name of Jesus and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.